Welcome to Murder Bucket, a true crime podcast where I talk about everything from murders, paranormal activity, kidnappings, abductions, and also weird stuff. If you never want to miss a new episode, be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. It would also be helpful if you rated and left me a review. This spreads the word about Murder Bucket. Let's see what we're going to pull out of the bucket this week. Good evening, Murder Bucket family, and welcome back to another glorious Tuesday. Where I live, it is in the 80s today, which, thank goodness, we've just had some crazy weather lately where it's either been cold or rainy or muggy or just not good enough to go outside. And thankfully, it has been really nice, at least today, like Monday it rained for a little bit, Sunday it rained for a little bit, Saturday it rained for most of the day, Friday it rained for most of the day. So I'm really praying that most of this rain is either gone or stays away for a little bit, because I don't mind the rain. We recently did a poll on our Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter asking if you guys were interested in doing more restaurant-themed stuff because we did the McDonald's Monopoly scheme, then we talked about the McDonald's massacre that happened, and you guys voted to have more restaurant-themed stuff. So we're going to continue with that, and tonight we are talking about the Luby's Massacre that happened in Colleen, Texas in 1991. Before we get started, let me just quickly do our week-slash-weekend recap. Friday night was not that exciting. Like I said, it rained most of the day, so we didn't go outside and do anything. Saturday, we hung around the house and did laundry. And then we went over to a friend's house because it was her birthday, and we watched the first and part of the second John Wick movies, which I'm not that interested in. Really, I just kind of went there for the food and for the company, and all in all, it was okay, except for the movies, because like I said, I'm just not interested in it. Sunday, went to church, had softball. Thankfully, it didn't rain. But we all thought it was going to be at least slightly cloudy, and none of us brought sunscreen. So, of course, when I got home, I am a lobster. A crispy little chicken, if you want to call it that. And my arms hurt so bad. But, of course, I wore a sports bra that isn't the same, like, line up as my regular bra. So wearing a regular bra hurts right now. I have been dousing myself in aquaphor, taking cold showers. Hopefully, maybe in a couple of days, it will stop hurting and maybe, probably not, but maybe it'll turn into a tan. Hopefully, it's better by next Sunday so that I can play softball and it doesn't hurt to raise my arms. Yesterday, we did have a weather report of severe thunderstorms, large hail, and tornadoes, but thankfully in our area, we didn't get hit with any of that except for just a little bit of rain, 
I know in some areas it did. I'm not sure if they actually had like any damage from the tornadoes or even if there were tornadoes. But thankfully, like I said, it didn't hit us as bad as we thought it was going to. And now it's Tuesday. You're here with me. You want me to stop rambling. So let's get into it. Luby's Massacre. In 1881, the Gulf, Colorado, and Santa Fe Railway extended its tracks through central Texas. They bought 360 acres. They platted a 70-block town on its land and named it after Frank P. Killeen, the assistant general manager of the railroad. By the next year, the town had a railroad depot, a saloon, several stores, and a school. By 1884, the town had a population of 350 people. There were now five general stores, two grist mills, two cotton gins, two saloons, a lumber yard, a blacksmith shop, and a hotel. In the 1940s, Camp Hood was created as a military training post to meet war demands. Laborers, construction workers, contractors, soldiers, and their families moved to the area. Killeen then became a military boomtown. The opening of Camp Hood changed the nature of the local economy. Colleen then suffered a recession when Camp Hood was all but abandoned after the end of the Second World War, but Southern congressmen got it established in 1950 as a permanent army post, which is now known as Fort Hood. The population grew from 1,300 in 1949 to 7,045 by 1950. By 1955, Colleen had an estimated 21,000 residents and over 224 businesses. Another recession came in the mid-1950s with troop cutbacks and transfers. This lasted until the end of the 1950s. After the U.S.'s involvement deepened in the Vietnam War, the demand for troops rose so the town began to grow again in the 1960s. In the 1970s, Killeen developed into a city of 35,000 people and had a municipal airport, a library, and a community college. By 1991, there were 64,000 people living there. Killeen is located 55 miles north of Austin and 125 miles south of Dallas. It is directly adjacent to the largest military base, Fort Hood. Its economy depends on the activities of the post, the soldiers, and their families. Interesting fact, my husband and I lived in Colleen for three and a half years while he was stationed at Fort Hood before we moved here to Maryland. So why am I telling you all about Colleen? Well, here goes. On October 16, 1991, 35-year-old George Hennard drove his blue 1987 Ford Ranger through the plate glass window of the Luby's Cafeteria in Colleen. On that day, there were well over 150 people inside celebrating Boss's Day, including customers and workers. He drove his truck directly into a table full of diners and then into another before coming to a stop. Many of the people inside thought the crash was an accident. One customer even ran over to help George get out of the truck. At that moment, George pulled a gun out, extended his arm through the driver's side window, and began shooting. The first victim shot was veterinarian Michael Griffith. George then got out of the truck and began yelling, 
All women of Colleen and Belton are vipers. This is what you've done to me and my family. This is what Bell County did to me. This is payback day. Many of the customers ducked underneath tables in hopes they wouldn't be seen. Al Morris, a police detective at the time, recalls the event in an article on kdhnews.com. Al was working an auto theft workshop at the hotel across from the Lubies when he learned of the shooting. He is quoted saying, I was coming back from lunch and I walked up through the hotel there and heard someone say something was going on outside. I went outside and talked to some lady. I asked her what was going on and she said there was a guy in Lubies shooting and killing everyone. He states that he ran back to his truck and got his gun and his walkie-talkie. Once he arrived on scene, he could see fellow officer Ken Olson yelling at George. Ken attempted to talk him into putting his gun down, but he wouldn't do it. Al could then hear fellow officer Chuck Longwell communicating with dispatch, so he called over the radio to ask what was going on. He was told by dispatch to stop talking because there was an emergency. Dispatch didn't realize that Al was on scene. He then walked up to the front entrance where George's truck was. He spotted George dodging in and out of sight while Ken was hollering at him. George circled around the restaurant, selectively picking his victims. He screamed at a woman and then shot her. He then saw another woman hiding underneath a bench near the serving line and said, Hiding from me? He then shot and killed her. He walked up on a woman with her baby and yelled, You, with the baby, get out before I change my mind. She ran out, holding her baby tight. George then came out from where he was hiding and fired around through the windshield of his truck. Ken hollered at him to put his gun down, but George replied, No, I'm going to kill more MFers. Al wanted to get a better angle, so he decided to edge around the truck. Once he did that, he realized the grisly scene. He states that he could see dead people laying on the floor. They were all ghostly white because the blood had almost ran out of their faces. George then walked up on Steve Ernest, his wife Judy, and Steve's mother-in-law. He shot Steve in the stomach and then shot Judy in the arm. The bullet went clean through and hit his mother-in-law instead. Al then walked up on Steve, Judy, and his mother-in-law. She was holding her mother and asked if she was gone. He told her yes and then walked a little bit further. He then came up on Al Gradia, who had been shot in the chest. He told him that he was going to try and get help. 28-year-old Tommy Vaughn was in the rear of the restaurant. He stood 6 feet 6 inches tall and weighed roughly 347 pounds. Tommy stood up, threw himself through a window to create an escape route for others. Dozens of people pushed, shoved, and knocked each other down as they made their escape. This drew attention to the rear of the restaurant and George began shooting in that direction. Everyone in the restaurant remained quiet so people could escape. Al then moved a bit further to get another good angle on George. He fired his gun at him and hit him a couple of times. Ken had also fired his gun and hit him. This is when Al realized that he was out of ammo and yelled at Ken. Ken then yelled over to him, stating, In my truck, I've got more. Al made the decision to leave and go get more ammo. As soon as he walked back into the restaurant, George fired his gun once more and killed himself. Ken shouted, he shot himself. 
Ken and Al then walked to the back of the restaurant and found him on the ground. They noticed that several of the rounds that they fired at him had hit the doors of the bathroom where several people were hiding. Thankfully, none of those rounds hit anyone inside. Here is a news clip from directly after the shooting. In central Texas, scenes from a massacre, the deadliest mass shooting in American history. This is the CBS Evening News. Dan Rather reporting. Good evening. A man went on a bloody rampage in central Texas today. He drove a truck into a cafeteria, opened fire on the crowd inside, and then committed suicide. It happened in the city of Colleen, about 50 miles north of Austin. When the shooting was over, more than 20 people were dead. CBS News correspondent Scott Pelley is on the scene. It was just afternoon. The cafeteria was jammed when the killer rammed his truck through a window. Witnesses say he fired with a semi-automatic pistol, pulling the trigger as fast as he could. He started by walking down the serving line. Witnesses say he fired, reloaded, and fired again. He was pretty calm about it. He, you know, he wasn't like cussing or saying mother, this or that. You know, he just, just opened fire. After several minutes of terror, there was chaos. Come on, come on, come on. Come on. Come on. All we could see was his, his legs and his body and the gun, and that's all. Because we weren't going to look out from under the tables. I mean, we were underneath the tables just trying to keep from getting hit. And they just kept saying, he's coming this away, he's coming this away. And someone behind us, who was sitting two or three tables from the window, picked up a table and threw it through the window, a chair or something. And, and we just all ran out as Everybody ran out as fast as we could. He kept shouting, I hope all this is worth it. I hope all this is worth it, Texas. And Belton. Those were the only things that they kept shouting. Yeah, I hope this is worth it, Texas. I hope this is worth it, Belton. And as soon as he would shout, he'd start firing again. Just, just randomly shot anybody in his path. I thought it was the backfire from the car at first. And then he pulled me underneath the table, and then it just kept on going and going. He just kept shooting and shooting. And it wasn't going to stop. So that's why we ran out. There was maybe... Maybe 15 people, people ran out. People actually got out of the restaurant. The small city, unable to cope with so many wounded, called in the military for help. So who is George Hennard? George was born on October 15, 1956, in Pennsylvania to a wealthy family. He was the son of a Swiss-born surgeon and a homemaker. He had two younger siblings and sister Desiree. Since George was a small child, he and his family moved all across the country as his father worked at different army hospitals. His family moved to New Mexico, where his father worked at the White Sands Missile Range near Las Cruces. George graduated from Mayfield High School in 1974, and he enlisted in the United States Navy. After three years, he was honorably discharged. He then went to work as a merchant mariner, but was dismissed due to possession of marijuana, as well as several racial incidents. That same month, his semen papers were suspended after he had a racial argument with another shipmate. He called Isaiah Williams, a port agent for the National Maritime Union in Wilmington, California, 
stating that he needed a letter of recommendation in order to regain his papers and rejoin the Merchant Marine. His attempt to be reinstated had been denied. He then spent several months in a drug treatment program in Houston. After his parents divorced in 1983, his father moved to Houston and his mother moved to Henderson, Nevada. George began working at several different jobs that included construction in South Dakota and Colleen while living part-time with his mom and part-time in a colonial home in Belton, Texas that his family had purchased in the 1980s shortly after moving to Fort Hood. At one point, George began stalking two sisters, 23-year-old Jill and 19-year-old Jana. They lived just two blocks from him. He sent them a five-page letter in June of 1991. Part of the letter reads this. Please give me the satisfaction of some day laughing in the face of all those mostly white, treacherous female vipers from those two towns, Colleen and Belton, who tried to destroy me and my family. You think the three of us can get together one day? Just two months before the shooting, George entered a convenience store in Belton to buy breakfast. The store clerk claimed that he leaned over the counter and said, I want you to tell everybody if they don't quit messing around my house, something awful is going to happen. A week before the shooting, George collected his paycheck at a cement company in Coppers Cove and announced that he was quitting. On his 35th birthday, just one day before the shooting, George had a conversation with his mother over the phone. Later that evening, he went out to eat and had a cheeseburger and fries. While at the restaurant, he watched the coverage of Clarence Thomas's confirmation hearings. The manager of the restaurant stated that George started going off when an interview with Anita Hill came on. He began to scream, You done bitches! You bastards open the door for all women. After the shooting, Al states that he dealt with nightmares and flashbacks for a long time. He said being in a gun battle and seeing all the casualties caused flashbacks to his time in Vietnam. He is quoted in an article on KDHnews.com saying, It affected me quite a bit. I was a crew chief mechanic and a door gunner on a Huey helicopter and I was involved in quite a few tough situations. I got shot down five times. I got a bullet through my shirt, but I never got wounded. I was there for a year and a lot of that flashed back. The first month after Luby's, I had a constant VCR in my head, and all I could see were the bodies laying on the floor. There were a lot of dreams at night. Quite a few times I would be laying in bed dreaming, and physically, my body would jump completely out of the bed onto the floor. I think a week after it happened, I was getting ready to go to work. We had another seminar at the hotel, and when I woke up that morning, I started crying. It really bothered me, thinking about Vietnam and the stuff I had seen there, and then this happened. I didn't know any of the victims at all. But when I was there, there was one lady that was lying dead on the floor, and she looked almost exactly like my ex-wife, who used to go there for lunch a lot, and that really shook me up. The then-mayor, Major Blair, put out a thank you to the first responders and said, No community is or could ever be prepared for the tragedy which struck Colleen. Our hope and prayers are that a similar event will never occur in any community. 
Kirby Lack and his friend Mike were grabbing lunch the day of the shooting. It was Kirby's first time eating at Luby's. In an article on KWTX.com, he recalls seeing a pickup truck speeding through the parking lot. Then, when the vehicle crashed through the window, Kirby saw the man get out and shoot the woman behind the cash register. He recalled seeing George making laps through the restaurant and shooting at random. He is quoted saying, At first, the restaurant was filled with the screams and cries of other customers, but that quickly changed. When he just kept making laps and saying, I'm going to kill everyone in here, I meant it went deathly quiet. Everybody quit crying. I think everybody was just trying not to draw attention to themselves. Kirby was shot in the lower hip, but during another lap of the restaurant, George pointed his weapon at him again. He shot at him, but instead it went into the carpet just one inch from his finger. Pastor Tommy Towers was a new pastor at First Baptist Church in October of 1991. When George crashed through the Lubies, Pastor Towers was in a Rotary Club meeting in the hotel next door. He didn't know anything had happened until he left and saw a horde of people had gathered in the parking lot as well as a cop he knew standing nearby. When he was informed of the shooting, he immediately thought of his wife who occasionally dined at Lubies. He didn't know if she was there when the shooting happened, so he raced home and found his wife there safe. He stated that he counseled one detective for at least six months after the shooting. Even three decades later, he states that his work is far from finished. In an article on the DallasObserver.com, he is quoted saying, For me, I'm still dealing with the PTSD of a number of people. Pastor Towers played a huge role in the aftermath of the shooting. When the media storm inevitably arrived, he tried to defuse what he said was a tense situation. Colleen wasn't accustomed to that kind of attention, and some of his parishioners didn't enjoy sharing the pews with the reporters. Pastor Towers invited the major networks to film his Sunday service, provided that they didn't interrupt with too much movement. At one point, he was asked by CBS's Dan Rathers if his faith was ever shaken by this. His response? Yes, it was. It's also times like these that my faith is strengthened. These trials are only to test your faith to see whether or not it is strong and pure. Pastor Towers refers to the Luby shooting as an emotional remembrance that still makes people cautious. Others are still coping with it to this day. Remember the young man who jumped through one of the windows to create an escape path? Well, he interviewed several years later with Reporting Texas newspaper. He talked about how when he goes out, he now carefully picks a seat that he thinks is the safest. He recalls saving lives that day, but does not call himself a hero. A lot has changed for him. He met Oprah. He met Dan Quayle. He lost 130 pounds. And several years ago, he reunited with one of the women who was alive because of him. That woman is Susan Hupp. She has been one of the country's foremost Second Amendment advocates for the last quarter century. In the same article as above, she is quoted saying, It's funny, because as much as I do Second Amendment stuff, I am not a gun person. I am not a hunter. I'm not into guns. Some people might argue that point, but they'd be wrong. I don't care about guns. 
Susan was in the restaurant that day with her parents, Al and Ursula Gradia. At the time, concealed carry was illegal. Susan had a gun but left it in her car. She was worried that if she was caught with a weapon on her, she would lose her chiropractor license. She is quoted saying, I was furious with myself for having obeyed a stupid-ass law that resulted in a lot of deaths, my parents included. She and her parents were wrapping up their meal when George drove his truck through the window. Her parents were shot and killed. Susan was one of those that left through the opening that Tommy created. Here is a news article with her 30 years after the shooting. In Colleen, Texas today, during the lunch hour, a man drove his pickup truck through the window of a cafeteria, got out, and opened fire. All you hear is gunshots, not one or two. It's like random shooting. People went to screaming and crying and running. Police in Texas say he killed 22 in the restaurant before killing himself. It is the worst mass shooting in the nation's history. It's been 30 years since the Luby's massacre killed 23 people, wounding 27 others in Colleen. Susanna Hub lost both her parents that day and lived through the terror of a mass shooting. In the aftermath, she took her heartache and loss and turned it into something that's action at the Texas State Capitol. Tonight, 25 in-depth news reporter Nick Bradshaw has that story. 1991 at Luby's in Colleen. And I saw him take aim and pull the trigger. And then he walked to the next person and took aim and pulled the trigger. Susanna Hupp enjoyed lunch with her parents before the shooting, saw the gunman killing people one by one, a total of 23 people. I thought to myself, I've got him, I've got him. I always carried a gun in my purse. Trying to survive what was at the time the worst mass shooting in U.S. history. A moment of panic for Hupp, as the killer stood just 15 feet away from her inside the Lubies. And then I realized as I reached for my purse that a few months earlier I had made one of the stupidest decisions of my life. I had begun leaving my gun in my car because at that time in the state of Texas it was illegal to carry on your person in any way, shape, or form. Both of her parents were shot and killed. It was that loss which put her on a mission to change laws. I can tell you that I'm not mad at the guy that did this. As he continued, it was obvious that he was a madman. I was angry at my legislators, and I, I spoke out about it, and that just kind of shoved me in front of the press. People, that is not the point of the Second Amendment. The Second Amendment is not about duck hunting. And I know I'm not going to make very many friends saying this, but it's about our rights, all of our rights, to be able to protect ourselves from all of you guys up there. Up made her rounds across the country, urging less restrictions for handguns. A moment of triumph for Huff. That's when then-Governor George W. Bush signed concealed handgun legislation into law four years later. And then in 1996, she was elected to represent Texas House District 54. Anytime you see one of these dreadful shootings, and, you know, my heart sickens for the people involved in them because I know what they're going to go through. Losing both of her parents with the nation watching. 30 years later, it's still difficult. When I drive past it, yeah, yeah, I remember my dad's body laying on a gurney. The pain is still real. Be aware. When you go into a restaurant, when you go into a theater, any public place, be aware. Being aware after living through a deadly day. Nick Bradshaw, 25 News.
Susan shared her story throughout the country and testified in support of concealed carry laws. She also ran for the Texas legislator and won five terms, serving from 1997 through 2006. She continues to advocate for gun rights, often proposing laws centered on who is eligible to carry a weapon, where they can carry it, and who needs to know. Before the Colleen shooting, the Texas Senate passed a bill that allowed trained, licensed adults to obtain concealed carry permits for handguns. Dr. Greg Lee Carter, a sociologist, recounts in his book, Gun in American Society, that there were enough votes to pass the bill on the floor of the Texas House. The House Rules Committee killed the bill by preventing it from reaching the House floor for a vote. A year later, Governor George W. Bush signed a concealed carry bill nearly identical to the one vetoed. Governor Bush's position on concealed carry laws was a huge part of his campaign. Numerous studies indicate that concealed carry handgun laws actually precede a rise in violent crime. A 2019 study published in the British Medical Journal revealed that states with more relaxed gun laws experience a higher rate of mass shootings. In recent years, Al Morris has expressed support for more gun accessibility. He is quoted in an article in the Colleen Daily Herald saying, There's more talk these days about gun control, but maybe if more people had a gun there at Luby's, somebody could have stopped it. Even though Susan is no longer in the legislature, she continues to appear on podcasts and give interviews in support of more gun accessibility. After the September 2019 mass shooting in El Paso, Midland, and Odessa, she lobbied Congress for less gun control. Luby's closed for five months before reopening. They did consider not reopening, just like the McDonald's in San Ysidro, but there was a huge outpouring of support from patrons and employees that felt it would be better to allow the restaurant to reopen and not give in to the killer. It closed permanently on September 9, 2000. The Chinese buffet moved into that space somewhere between 2013 and 2015. I only remember this because my husband and I frequently ate there when we lived there. There is a pink granite memorial that stands behind the Colleen Community Center with the date of the event and the names of those who killed. We will have a moment of silence after I read the names of those killed during the Luby shooting on October 16, 1991. Patricia Carney, 57. Jimmy Carthers, 48. Cremil David, 62. Stephen Dotty, 43. Al Gradia, 71. Ursula Gradia, 67. Deborah Gray, 33. Michael Griffith, 48. Venice Hinnon, 70. Claudine Humphrey, 63. Sylvia King, 30. Zona Lynn, 65. Connie Peterson, 41, Ruth Pujol, 55, Susan Rashot, 36, John Ramiro Jr., 29, Thomas Simmons, 33, Glenn Spivey, 55, Nancy Stansbury, 44, Olgika Taylor, 45, James Welch, 75, 
Lula Welch, 75, and Iva Williams, 64. And that concludes this evening's episode. Please take a moment to listen to this promo from my friends at the Deep Dark Truth Podcast. I'm Mo. I'm Chip. And I'm Mikey. And we're the hosts of the Deep Dark Truth Podcast. An allegedly hilarious podcast that investigates bizarre true crimes, conspiracies, mysteries, and the cryptid dating scene. Because local cryptids want to meet you. Call me Bigfoot, 313-355-3411. Find us wherever you listen to podcasts. Don't forget to rate and review this podcast. And keep searching for the deep, deep dark, dark truth. I hate when you guys do that. Thanks for sticking around to the end. Be sure to follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.